Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Oftentimes, when we think about people with disabilities, we focus on what they can't do, not what they can do. And Yet the human brain and the human body is remarkably adaptable. We are creative and we find solutions even in the most impossible situations. So what can we learn from people with disabilities in terms of how they navigate the environment? What aspects of the environment do we ignore because we don't have any disabilities? This week, we talked to Sarah Hendren, who's an artist, professor, and a thinker working at the intersection of design and disability. Her new book is called What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World. And in it, she describes the many ways in which we can learn from people with disabilities and how we can optimize our environment to be more inclusive. Sarah Hendren, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So good to be here. So your book is a very different take on sort of the way that people who are disadvantaged, how we consider them. And so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about What made you want to write about this problem, this idea that so many of us don't think about how our built environment is suited to our bodies? Yeah, I mean, it's an old idea in the sense that, you know, in my research area, which is in design and disability, I teach design and disability at an engineering college. And as a result, I've been reading a lot in disability studies and collaborating for a decade with people with disabilities, who many of whom would call themselves disabled people, disabled not by the shape of their bodies or how they work, but actually by the shape of the built environment. So friends of mine who use wheelchairs would say, the matter isn't so much that my legs don't walk, it's that the world is full of stairs. So Yes, I have biological facts about my body, but really the interaction between the built world and my body is where the misfit, that's what Rosemary Garland Thompson would call it, that's what the condition of disability, a misfit, a misfit that's actually not just located on bodies, but is this interaction between bodies and the world. And so when we look at the condition of disability, we actually find clues for the misfits that arrive for all of us, kind of no matter our embodiment, how, like how we find ourselves in the world. But there's lots of ways that our bodies don't match 
how the world is kind of built to be. And so my book is this tour through thinking about the con- you know the states of our body at the scale of limbs, like our very you know, extensions in our bodies themselves, but also in household products and furniture and also in the rooms that we uh, inhabit and the streets where we walk and and beyond. So it's an examination through a lot of journalism and talking to people and sort of profiles of individuals who've taken up the work of of reshaping the built environment, sometimes at really large scale historically, things like the implementation of curb cuts, right, all over cities but also in the very micro ways of um, tinkering with their built environments to make them friendlier to their bodies. And so we look at products that that are mass manufactured, but we also look at people in their living rooms doing the ordinary tinkering with the built world. And all of the book is meant to help the reader do a couple of things. One is to take a really close look at all the stuff in their daily lives, all of which is designed, you know, not, not just fancy buildings, you know, sort of shiny buildings that are brand new and unveiled, but really just all the household utensils, all the stuff in your kitchen, everything you put on every day, your shoes, your eyeglasses, and so on. And to think of those as the product of human intention that has a lot of assumptions built into it. Who's it built for? How's it used? How easy or difficult is it? So to look at design with new eyes, but then also to see themselves, again, no matter their body, connected to the politics of disability, which has done this historic and profound work of shaping and reshaping the built environment. Yeah, you know, I remember learning that the reason that the elevator doors sometimes close more slowly than we would like is because there was a law that was passed, at least in New York, that made it illegal to have an elevator door that would close more quickly than a person in a wheelchair could get out of the elevator. Yeah. And that when I learned that, all of a sudden, I felt like I had much more patience when I was pushing the buttons on the elevator, you know, I was like, oh, I get it. Even though I have to wait an extra few seconds, the person now who is in a wheelchair can actually enter and exit this elevator. Yeah. And I guess the question then too is like, when have I also benefited from slowness, right? I think a lot of times we think of technologies and evaluate them only insofar as they are as quick and efficient as possible. But if you have moved through the built environment with a young child who's learning to walk or hauling some heavy gear behind you or temporarily on crutches or in the company of an older adult who needs to be careful not to slip and fall, then you will see the virtues of slowness too, right? So those moments are, again, an invitation if you can see it as such to say, oh, huh, what is a desirable experience and a more human and humane one moving through the built world? Sometimes, yes, efficiency and speed are called for. And sometimes if we look, we can see the virtues of a a different speed, you know, for our mechanics and so on. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's kind of speaks to an issue about sort of what what kinds of values a society has. Because on the one hand, you could argue, well, the person who is designing this is designing it for a market. And the market is a certain size. And so you want to optimize it for the largest number of people so that you can sell your product and, and you know, make a profit. And yet we have people for, you know, who have all kinds of various disabilities. And so I wonder if you could just speak to a little bit about sort of the the way that designers consider the interplay between being inclusive of everyone and then also optimizing for a particular market. Yeah, that's right. So I think we can think of designers doing both 
very civic work. I mean, the Americans with Disabilities Act, right, was a, a kind of anti-discrimination law. And the one of the key insights in that law is to see that discrimination can actually be material. That is to say, if you can't physically get into the building, then you can't get to the voting booth, you can't get to the job, you can't get to the to the educational institution. So to that's where design, the literal material concrete design is a, is a also a civic matter. So so in that way, it's just a sort of democratic right to say we need to and here again is the history of curb cuts and if listeners don't know, right, just think about where the the corner where the sidewalk meets the street. I mean that all of that infrastructure was altered at, you know, at, at mass scale to make it possible to move from in a wheelchair from the curb down to the street and back up again independently. And because getting into the public street is getting into the public sphere as a civic actor, right? So that's where design is doing its civic work and where we have to say, if you want a democratic society, you have to take this seriously and by legal, you know, guarantee and so on. And then what you're describing too is the invitation within markets where designers are also working in the private sector to sort of, you know, deliver the kinds of goods we we all have are all extending our bodies all the time. So we are never, none of us is ever not extended with all kinds of assistive aids all the time. So we're using chopsticks or forks and knives or, you know, any number of household tools, pushpins, staplers, you know, to say nothing of smartphones and so on. So the designers in those markets that bring us products have a number of invitations before them. And as you said, you know, in the modern era, we tend to think of mainstream markets and and products that have, quote, impact only insofar as they reach, you know, X number of people. And that's called an economy of scale in manufacturing. And sometimes we want that. And you can look actually there in the history of disability and design for good ideas that came to the mainstream and, in fact, made that kind of impact. So, for example, I tell the story of the way that the OXO Good Grips kitchen tools. This is a famous story in design. Lots of people have celebrated it. But they don't often know. If you, so if you think about that chunky rubber handle that's on perhaps the peeler in your kitchen drawer and maybe the tongs and other things, there's a whole line of those good grips. Yeah, tools. I love OXO. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know that, that was, those were designed originally with the insight for the condition of arthritis. So, so Betsy Farber, who's the wife of Sam Farber, they were on vacation. Sam was an entrepreneur in retirement. Betsy had arthritis was using a kind of the old-fashioned, like from my youth, vegetable peeler that had a metal handle that's really difficult to wield. I mean, a peeler takes a exact right amount of grip and force and so on. And was saying, why can't there, why can't this be better? Why can't I use this kitchen tool? And the two of them, Sam came out of retirement and worked with Smart Design um, and OXO to make this this grippy rubber handle that is much more ergonomic and has little fins on it and tells you just where to put your thumb and how to depress it, you know, with just the right amount of force. And so, and that took a long time actually for people to adopt in the market because it was so unlike the the, the kitchen tools of that time. But it has become, people know, a sensation in part because of an economy of scale. That is, you can go to the big box store now and purchase it for under $10. And that really matters. It's like that level of distribution for an everyday tool is just what you want. And again, a lot of people don't appreciate that, that the insight actually came not from looking at the mainstream for the evidence, but from looking at the so-called margins. So looking at a, an acute condition, a use case that people had not considered before and went, aha, actually a lot of people want an easier to use kitchen tool. It's a daily kind of strain. So, and for instance, on the closed captioning that's, you know, on your, on the TV in your, the restaurant or the airport, that was a hard won fight that was a, a legal fight, but 
by deaf advocates, watchers of television who wanted to have caption technology built into um, every television just as a standard kind of stock part of the manufacturing process. And they got a lot of pushback from industry, again, on the, the grounds that like this is a niche market, who will really use it? And again, listeners, you can hardly imagine now being in an airport and being able to watch CNN and follow the, the debate or the game without that technology, because it was designed for a, a marginal case that became useful to a lot of people. So here again, I would just say design answers to different kinds of mandates. One is a civic one. If you want a democracy, you have to attend to everyone who's in it. But another is is in markets, and there are ways to operate in markets that are more inclusive and less inclusive, my book is a whole invitation, not just to that universalizing, like those kitchen tools and the closed captioning, but to look for the inventiveness that's at the heart of the experience of disability everywhere. And again, disabled people have been saying this for a long time. And my book is a way of kind of taking a lot of the scholarship and a lot of the historical examples and showing you in a very, you know, um, plain language and um, sort of story-driven way Look at all. Look at this incredible uh, intellectual and creative tradition that's also doing something so powerful in a political sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I was surprised that you, you know, still use the term disabled. Yeah. Because I, you know, I want to talk about that because because what what you describe in your book are people who have incredibly creative solutions to problems that they face every day. And yet they still call themselves disabled. I don't know. I just I, it, it struck me as like really interesting in this in in the kind of current political correctness culture. So t- tell me about that. I'm glad you raised it. Yeah, because certainly in my classroom and you know with non-disabled people, they think, wait, I thought I was supposed to say you know differently abled or exactly you know, especially yeah. challenged or whatever. And I see where that comes from. And, you know, I, I addressed this a little bit in the beginning of the book. There are people for whom I have a son who has Down syndrome. Lots of people in the Down syndrome community pr- preferred that you say, I have a son with Down syndrome. And I don't say I have a Down syndrome child, right? So it's it really depends. And I think the best people can do is to ask how people want to be referred to. But I do think it's important to note this history. Simi Linton, who's one of the um, real founders of the field of disability studies and disability rights, has written a lot about this, about how at a key moment, sort of 70s and 80s, the disability community opted to use disabled both to try to say, look, this is a civic and collective matter and not just a property of my body, right? So I I live in a disabling world and that by organizing people who are blind, people who are wheelchair users, people who use other kinds of assistive gear, people on the autism spectrum, whatever, by organizing, by saying we live in a disabling world, if we call ourselves, we choose the word disabled because it aligns us in a kind of politically strategic group to, to lobby for what we want, which is more access, right? And a, and a more uh, flexible built environment. So yes, it is, I think, surprising to people to hear that. And it's not universal. And right, again, you know, language is something that we can get tripped up on and, and worry excessively about. And I would just argue that language and representation is one small part of politics that also includes material gains and um, economics and so on. But if you ask people how they prefer to be referred to, you know, you can't go wrong. But it is really interesting to note, right? What is a disabling world and who is disabled in it? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really kind of interesting way of putting it because you're you're taking and, and you may I take the point that you're making where you're not attributing the identity of the individual with you know a disease or disorder or disability, but rather saying that this is something that they have to deal with or the world has to deal with. That's um, right. I think that's really interesting. 
Yeah, it has a collectivizing effect, you know, to say. Exactly. What is it's our also responsibility? my responsibility yeah. Yeah, as a person who is abled That's right. <laughs> to recognize, you know, how the world it can be disabling. And also, and to recognize that in a lifespan, we will each, you know, traffic in and out of periods of, of interdependency and plain dependency. I mean, we enter the world quite dependent on one another, and we often end our lives in periods of greater or even acute dependency. So the invitation there is to say, oh, I see. The world is disabling for each of us in a temporal way. So sometimes long term and sometimes for in fits and starts. But my invitation in this book, which is the long invitation in disability studies and by disabled people, is to say, oh, I see. I live in this planet, too, which is to say I have a body that has needs, full stop, right? And if I locate myself there, then I stop getting hung up on kind of like, am I, you know, what is the language or how do I refer to people and just sort of say, oh, disability is a human experience. That means it's packed with wisdom and resources and also that the stakes are held by each of us. Mm-hmm. And also that, you know, I like the point that you make, too, where we aren't just either one or the other, and that at different times in our lives, we can, we can you know, be have different disabilities. And like, I remember, yeah. so in San Francisco, where I live, there are streets where there are a lot of kind of mom and pop stores that they're explicitly not allowing chain stores, etc, because they want to retain this culture of these small businesses. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a time when, you know, people who and I and again I don't I don't know I don't want to put blame or you know on any one individual or group but there was this like this this scandal going on where businesses were being targeted because they weren't uh, wheelchair accessible and the idea was that you know they were trying to put these businesses out of business uh, mm-hmm. because they didn't have a ramp and so there was this big push to like you know have signs saying if you need a ramp you know let me know I'll go get it from the back of the store which doesn't really help the person in the wheelchair because you know you got to go there get the person's attention the open the door yeah, like right. yeah like how it's not practical, right? Right, right. And I remember thinking, like, this seems, you know, on the one hand, I can see the plight of the small business owner where they can't afford, like, if they have to put in all of these accommodations, they can't afford to, you know, sell their wares. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, it really is a very, it is very unfair that you're saying to a, you know, a part portion of society. And it wasn't really personal to me until I tried to go into those doors with a stroller. Yes. <laughs> and then I realized, like, yeah wow, like my life would be so much easier right now if there was just a little curb right here. And so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about kind of this push and pull between, you know, businesses who say that, well, we can't, you know, we can't change our entire model on the basis of a minority of people. I guess we've kind of already touched upon that. But then there's this like understanding that actually it's not a minority of people potentially. (laughs) Yeah, but also I think this just takes our really close attention to the matter at hand in the highly specific contexts. And so so in my city in Boston, there are also a lot of mom and pops, but there are you know, even more, there are these inherited old structures, right? It's an old city. And so we have this, these single step entrances a lot all over Boston. And, you know, this is a real conundrum because it's one step, right? But these are often very little shops. And so in my city and in lots of places, these folks are exempt from the Americans with Disabilities Act architectural code, where meaning they can keep their single step as such because it's thought to be onerous for them to overhaul the entrance unless they are also doing X amount of overhauling inside. And then they sort of trip a wire that's like, okay, you need to also create wheelchair access. And in my experience, I have a project that's about temporary ramps and looked into this a little bit. In my experience, 
the issue is not so much, okay, well, are we going to have this big blanket, you know, one size fits all law? No, I think we can, we should probably think really creatively about what's appropriate at what scale. But the problem is that the the entire rhetorical framing, like from planners and architects tends to be one of like compliance and box checking instead of one of creative invention, which is to say, right, you know, Temporary ramps, for one thing, are like an entire technology that you could think about better. So do they wheel out on casters? How flexible are they? Where are they stored? And also, yes, the signage, as you say, like how easy or difficult are you going to make it to get the ramp when you need it, whatever. There was a whole campaign that was started by a wheelchair user in Toronto named Luke Anderson called the Stop Gap Project. And it's nothing more than like, we'll provide this very handy wooden ramp to do that single step entrance, just the ramp from the sidewalk into your store with a little rope on the side and they make and distributed them for free. But they, it's called the Stop Gap Project as a kind of, you know, civic move to make businesses more architecturally friendly without this kind of like, bringing, throwing the book at people, you know, and threatening to boycott and doing all the things that you're describing. So my problem, I mean, it seems to me there are, you know, half a dozen ways to solve these issues architecturally and policy-wise and so on. But the problem is really this framing, this kind of pitting of folks who are business owners with this sort of like draconian law that they now have to comply with and how, you know, like the negativity of that. And then the kind of reactionary response from the disability community. I mean, like that kind of polarity is not helping anyone. So it's a matter of a better sort of framing and a creative enterprise to take up together. And, you know, here at um, Inquiring Minds, we've kind of declared it a COVID-free zone so that we can talk about (laughs) science without having to talk about COVID. But I also actually think that in a a lot of ways, your book, the the pandemic has made people think about things differently in a way that your book is so timely because it highlights the fact that we have to come up with creative solutions when the world constrains us. And I think that I'm seeing that in a lot of industries where people are like, you know, at first, there's this big backlash, you know, (laughs) yeah, let's just keep going business as usual. But then it's like, people are being really creative and figuring out how to find satisfaction and entertainment and all the things that we've lost. That's right. And I do think people are noticing this far and wide at every level. I mean, I know lots of disabled people who've been asking for much more robust telehealth practices, for example, you know, and (laughs) just the sheer force of inertia has been against us. And I know people in, you know, kind of medical governance here in Boston who've been saying we've needed to do this for a long time. There just are a lot of people who don't want to take up the technology. And the inertia of the way things are and the way things have always been is a heavy force. And so when something like this happens and we sort of wake up all of our structures, there's also shared street initiatives being prototyped outside my house. You know, sustainability advocates have asked for this for a really long time. So, you know, it does in these situations of crisis, I think we take another look at the moments that we've said, oh, yeah, that ideal future Sure, that you want, that sounds good, but it'll never happen. And suddenly it turns out, right, that under the right circumstances, in fact, lots of things can change. And I do think the invitation right now is for us to go like, ooh, where are the parts a little bit shifting and shuffling? And where might there be the spark of a good idea, you know, that's actually been sort of waiting to come to the fore? And I do think there's some some possibilities around. But design, above all, for regular old citizens mostly depends on the the qualities of our attention. Can we look really closely? What's happening? And is it good? And where are the where's the data for and against it? Who's it serving and who is it not? But can we 
see things other than what they had been. You know, that takes a kind of willful <laughs> trust and belief in the kind of marginal gains of change and sometimes in overhauling really big structures. We're seeing this too, you know, in Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of, yes. a lot of mm-hmm. discussion about the way things are not serving us and what else could be out there. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just amazing. People say, oh, that's totally impossible. And then overnight, it's <laughs> <That's> totally <laughs> ubiquitous. That's you know? right. Yeah. Like, you know, never end. Yeah, like telehealth, you know, all of a sudden, yes, yeah. you know, and it, and it works just fine for the most part. I mean, obviously, there are things you need to do in person. But, you know, anyway, the majority of things are easy. And, and disabled people, again, have often, I mean, they often have been way out in front. You know, I think a lot of times Mm -hmm. people say, oh, in all these changes, we need to make sure not to forget disabled people. And a lot of times Alice Wong, who's a very visible activist, talks about disabled people as oracles, modern day oracles, because a lot of times people have been saying, yeah, we have bodies that have been, you know, we live in conditions where it's been difficult for us to get to the doctor or to do work on site 40 hours a week for a long time. And we've Mm -hmm. been told no, no, no. And so, you know, in this in this way, too, disabled people are way out in front. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's going to be something like, you know, again, like a real positive net effect of this pandemic is that people who haven't been able to thrive in their industries now suddenly are finding themselves doing really well. Because that's true. Yeah. You know, I hope I hope that that continues. I do, too. BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So I want to talk a little bit about some of these less visible disabilities. And in particular, I was really interested in hearing about deaf space and kind of the way that people who are hard of hearing, and I use that term precisely because I did work with a group of people who had cochlear implants, and they they themselves preferred to be referred to as people who are hard of hearing rather than... Both of those populations at Gallaudet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what are the creative ways in which the community, you know, the deaf community has been able to create environments that are, I don't know what to say, like useful, helpful, yeah, sure. functioning, Even <laughs> functional. En- enhancing, you know, to, yeah. to a way of being. That's right. Yeah, deaf space. So, so if folks don't know, Gallaudet University is in Washington, D.C., and it is 
an all deaf and hard of hearing campus. So it's, it's a bilingual campus. They would say they're a proud signing community. They use both um, written English and sign language for all their communications. And Gallaudet was chartered in 1863, I believe, by uh, Abraham Lincoln. And so it's been around for a long time. And so deaf folks have designed their environments in lots of inventive ways for a long time. So at Gallaudet, you know, in the archives there, you can see a vibratory doorbell, like a a somatic doorbell. So you would pull a chain and a lead weight would drop inside a building and people would feel that weight drop instead of hearing the doorbell, you know, so just ingenious kinds of um, very low-tech mechanical solutions to solving um, how to live together for deaf folks. But a decade or so ago, a number of deaf students and alumni and faculty at Gallaudet got together with the campus architect, Hansel Bauman, and they decided to both, you know, track and kind of codify those kinds of design moves that had been there all along historically, and then also to look closely at all of the values that are packed into sign language as a language and think about how they might really design explicitly new buildings toward that. So, for instance, they thought a lot about, they come up with with several principles for thinking about what's important in communications in sign that has to do with architecture. And they thought about, they named, for instance, Matthew Malskoon, who's a Gallaudet alum, talked about deaf folks as being spherical people. And what he means is that when you're signing, you know, you're actually communicating in a wider like circumference around your body than just the kind of the spoken speech that's coming out of your mouth. I mean, of course, people who speak also use their body language, but not nearly to the dynamics of sign. But also, if you're signing, if I'm signing one to you, you know, one person to the other, you're also in earshot, as it were, right, of people who are around, or maybe you're signing to a group, and so you, they all need to see you, and they're at different points, you know, in your periphery. So how that manifests in architecture is that you need actually a little bit more space in a hallway to both to sign if you're in a group, and to also maintain the kind of visual field of watching somebody sign while also watching where you're going down the hallway so that you don't, you know, stumble in front of a barrier. So Things like the width of the hallways, things like at Gallaudet, um, there's a, a the lobby of a dorm that has multiple pods of rooms, but the walls in those rooms are half height walls. They're not full height because why? You don't need a wall to separate as a sound barrier. You need really long sight lines. So you can be signing in your little pod at a table, or you can be signing all the way across the room to someone distantly at the cafe um, at the end of the at the end of the row. There's also a, a lot of use of solid blues and greens because those are nice contrasts for all different skin tones doing the kind of detailed work of visual signs. You don't want busy wallpaper behind you or the kind of harshness of white. So there are all these design decisions that became part of what's called deaf space at Gallaudet. And I think what's confounding and mysterious and magical about it is that it's not a focus on the restoration of hearing for deafness. It's actually an organization of a building that's meant to enhance the experience of visual language. And so Gallaudet you know, like other kinds of architectural sort of research programs, is looking at buildings that do something different than just the standard ordinary norms. And what's really fascinating, too, I talk in the book about the signing Starbucks, which is nearby. And that is nothing more and nothing less than a Starbucks in the way that you would see it, except all the staff are deaf and and signing folks. 
And then, of course, the customer mix is a mix of hearing and, and voicing folks and also deaf and hard of hearing folks. And I went there and bought myself some tea and I didn't need any extra instructions or it wasn't an elaborate, you know, process to be able to place my order just fine. I did it on a quick, you know, wipe away electric tablet, wrote my name and my order down, and then my name came up on a monitor at the end of the coffee bar. And what's fascinating about that is that I think a lot of people imagine that access or that a different sensorium is going to result in all these like incredibly hard won changes. Sometimes that's true. But at the signing Starbucks, it take it's like swapping out a few little moves with not even super high tech. And all the dynamics change. You know, this entire staff, none of whom voice in English, was able to serve anybody who walks in there just fine. And the just the power of that reversal and the inventiveness of that is just stunning to me. So there are plans for a bank and a pizza parlor nearby um, with the same kind of service structure. And in my field, we would call that service design. So it's not so much about the widget, the gadgets themselves, but it's about What's the interaction? What happens here? I walk up to the to the counter and what? What's going to happen next? And it's just it's just incredible the endless creativity and the urgency of the of the stakes again. Yeah, there's there's a pizza parlor in San Francisco that is um, run by people who are deaf. And what you describe is it works really well. And as, as long as you know what, you know, to expect as you walk in, you don't have the awkward moment of like, you know, but that brings me to a conversation I had recently um, with someone who was who's just really opened my eyes to a lot of things. His name is Jerome Ellis, and he's a musician who stutters. And he has a very bad stutter, and, and he stutters on his name. And so as you were describing, it's not just people who are deaf or hard of hearing who would have trouble in that Starbucks, but a person who stutters when they're asked to say their name. I mean, he says he goes through this this thing where, you know, you have different reactions that people make to his stutter as he begins to stutter. You say, you know, can you tell me your name? And he stands there stuttering. And, you know, the other person's reaction ranges from, you know, if it's on the phone, they'll hang up after a couple of seconds to like waiting out the full minute, recognizing what's happening, you know, thinking maybe he's having a seizure because he does this thing with his eyes that, you know, so like there's this yeah. big, big range of reactions that he gets. Yeah, right. And, Yet it's a, it's something that he has to deal with every single day. And talking to him really made me aware of the role that time has in terms of we should never think of. And and your last chapter clock, you know, is just so from the heart and compelling and fascinating. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what it was like to have your son Graham and how that has changed your relationship with time. Yeah. And let me just say, I'm so glad you brought up stuttering because it's such a, I mean, some listeners, you know, will be thinking like, well, you know, what about in that case, you know, like, is that person, might he be going to therapy to try to stutter less? Might he be asking the world to accept him stuttering more? Like, what is the, what's the, where's the disability politics in that? And I just want to say that every person is different in this, you know, like you have, each person builds a different relationship to what Alison Kafer calls a curative imaginary, right? So the question there is not like, you know, plenty of stutterers I know are going to speech therapy and they are hoping to be a little more recognizably normal in that way, right? And some of them are not. And and so what the invitation to us as always is to say, let, let's be specific and be curious about where people are in their relationship to cures or betterment or whatever. I just want to indicate what a rich, complicated matter that is. So yeah, and time is yeah, is a thing that a lot of people don't think about in terms of of disability, except maybe I guess if if you are thinking about 
aging. And I opened that chapter of Clock talking about the this ingenious crosswalk design in Singapore City, perhaps other parts of the world too. But in Singapore, the call button on the pedestrian crosswalk, you press, you know, to call it to then give you, you know, 23 or 42 or 12 seconds to get across the street. And that depends on how wide the street is and so on. But in Singapore, which was reckoning with its aging population, which is predominant in the world now, said, okay, well, how can we lengthen the crosswalk time? Because we know that older adults need a little bit more time to cross uh, safely. And for them, the the ingenious kind of solution was to take the government-issued transit card and to outfit it with a technology called the Green Man Plus program. So now if you hover that card at the call box and you're an older adult or somebody who's disabled and identifies with, you know, can, has a condition that necessitates it, you can get now, you know, an extra 12 or 13 seconds to, to cross the street. And then after you're done, the the regular clock kind of goes back. So it's this literally like elasticizing the function of time in built space, which I just think is stunning. And I opened the chapter there to just say, what about this, right? What about slowness? And that slowness is something I think a lot about because of my son, Graham. He's the eldest of my three children and has Down syndrome. And he is 14 now. But, you know, his living life with him has been this, you know, incredibly vivid and rich kind of series of encounters of, of the misfit of his life, which is not so much about his physicality, but it is about developmental disability that he is not proceeding through a K-12 education at the prescribed norm of efficiency and progress that we think of, you know, as being the desirable one for, for young people. And what that means is that his slowness, his particular brand of slowness, is at odds really not with, you know, normal in some eternal sense, but with the norm of industrial time. That's economic time. That's the time that we, you know, in who think of ourselves as able-bodied, have internalized utterly. That is to say, yes, of course, I want to be at the top of the charts, right, at the pediatrician's office in the well-established bell curve of normal and high on the sort of test score percentiles compared to other children. And what does that mean? Quick and efficient and hopefully advanced and accelerated, right, sped up uh, time negotiated through the K-12 system so that, what, I'll go to the kind of competitive college where I will get ahead, right? And for what end there? What is the horizon that I might become, you know, the most efficient and speedy worker who has no needs, right? Who who obeys the clock absolutely uh, in body and in mind and, and spirit. And so living with someone who's misfit on those temporal standards has just reminded me how Actually, the time of of industry is not really set up for anyone. So I introduced the reader to an idea long held in disability studies by disabled people called CRIP time, C-R-I-P, which is short for cripple. And CRIP time and sort of CRIPness in general is like one of these terms that, you know, used to be a derogatory term and nobody would want you to call them a cripple, right? But CRIPS is, has been a way to reclaim that language and make it a term of empowerment. But CRIP time isn't just the longer time that it can take to get through the world in a wheelchair or something else. Crip time is this diagnosis of the exacting, you know, and punishing even standards of economic time by which each human is measured as an index of our worth. And that really is what's at stake here, right? When people say, you know, my son is rendered, you know, in pregnancy as a risk and a defect, right? And, a, and the opposite of a healthy baby, right? That, that's what people say. 
And what they mean is that non-normative intelligence is a disease. Like that ultimately is what it's about. And it's just a really interesting, I'm a pro-choice mother all day long, who also is quite troubled by the way that a human being is rendered in those terms by his relationship to the clock of economic time. So it's a long story, but yeah. I totally get what you're saying because I remember being tested, you know, all these tests in, in early pregnancy. It's like you fail if your that's risk right. for developing, you know, having a child with Down syndrome is too high, right? Like that's like considered failing the test, which is really interesting. Yeah, it is. And I know what people mean, of course, you know, and but and you have to have experienced it differently to sort of see it with a critical eye. And yet I do hope that people will ask those those critical questions, with, you know, which are like, what, oh, what is a... What is a desirable life for any of my children? And what are the tacit hopes that I think will make them thrive, not be competitive now? Like, again, do we have to each make a living? And yes, of course, right? All those practicalities. But but boy, if you hear the way parents talk and the the deep anxiety and worry over being behind, yeah, behind and what they mean, that's a, it's a clock kind of word, right? That That they might be on a different kind of trajectory. It is fever pitch for sure. I mean, I was just reading something today about, you know, parents who have kids in elementary school age in the pandemic, like, be careful because if you don't teach them to read in the next few months, if you don't concentrate on reading, writing, and math, like, they're going to be behind for the rest of their lives. And I'm like, that's that's totally ridiculous. That's ridiculous. (laughs) That's ridiculous. You know, and yeah, if you think about it, like, there's nothing developmentally that they need. I mean, reading and writing is something that's only 600 years in our human history. It's not like, you know. No, it's a part of our evolution. And it already wildly varies country. It's highly cultural. Yeah, but when we decide literacy is, is important, it's so true. It's not like their brain is going to develop differently, you know, yeah. quote unquote. But I also think it's telling that we, I think that, that idea of like, you will set in motion something that is an irrevocable kind of yeah. result. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Everything about, you know, neuroscience, everything we know about bodies tells us that we are fundamentally adaptive, plastic, evolving people through our whole lives. You know, like we, we know that from the science. And I, you know, if readers of the book take a look at the limb chapter, you'll see people just doing this kind of deeply adaptive work, which is extraordinary and yet utterly ordinary. In other words, our children are not, they're not machines. I mean, this is, I think, the reach of that economic metaphor where we think like, oh, like somehow, you know, you're going to, like a widget is going to get broken and then it's done forever. Now, this is leaving aside, there are structural inequities that if they're meted out this year on kids who are already struggling, yes, we need to pay attention to those kinds of inequities over again the long term. But to speak about any one individual and to act as though if X doesn't happen by you know, this moment, then why will inevitably result and then you can spell out their lives for the next 80 years? I mean, it's just, it's nuttiness. I mean, there's so much angst, I think, that could be taken away from parents who have, you know, differently abled, disabled, neurodivergent children if we just took the clock away, you know, because, you know, I think that's one thing, like people just you know, have so much anxiety about, well, my child's not meeting these milestones. He's never going to be X, never going to be able to be independent. He's never going to be, you know, whatever. Yeah. And yet, like, I had this experience where I teach at the Conservatory of Music. I teach uh, musicians how to develop more effective practice strategies using the neuroscience of learning and memory. And my best student so far has been a person who was on the spectrum and sent me an email right from the beginning saying, 
this is what's hard for me. This is what I need. He made me a better teacher. He excelled in my class. And like, I'm sure that his parents were told, you know, when he was young that, you know, all these things are going to happen. And so that that all it will ever be is struggle, right? And that's, I think, that's right. That's right. And and so that's not to diminish struggle, but people can never see like the deep inventive and adaptiveness, right, that your student has just developed. And that lots and lots of young people who have no diagnostics struggle by their this, this obsession with comparison one to another, and they don't have any tools, right, to sort of say, what if I break this down instead of just panicking that I'm not getting it like everybody else in the status quo? And I saw this in him, and I see this with a lot of kids with Down syndrome in particular, too. There's a joy that comes with you know, finding success or achieving or, or, you know, overcoming some of these obstacles that a lot of kids that are more abled, however, we want to label it, just feel more angst, you know, there's a kind of it's it to me, it's really interesting, like just the, the, you know, the joy and the brightness that he would bring into the classroom, having done the things that people told him that he couldn't do, (laughs) like was just that's right. And I think, again, we have so little imagination for the deeply human experience of disability, which is to say, look at all of the incredible joy, imagination, the advantages as well as disadvantages. I mean, instead, we've just, it's like compliance language in architecture. We just have decided to call these like kids with special needs and burdens, you know? And I think like, if you could see how well adapted my son Graham is to life under COVID, I mean, in lots of ways, he's showing me how to, to keep this kind of even temper. And, you know, People love to sort of say about kids with Down syndrome that they're these sort of angels or something. You don't have to resort to that. You can just say he's a person with deep gifts as well as with real struggles. And if we let him be a fully human person, that means that we can also see ourselves not just as this, are we ahead or are we behind? Are we keeping up or are we, you know, instead saying, look at me, like, look at me replete with skills and gifts and also with deep needs. And so if I can say I live on that same planet together, what's the world that I want that acknowledges all that stuff? So I just want to let our listeners know that if you want an uplifting and incredibly interesting book, you should uh, pick up What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World by Sarah Hendren. I really found this book just so joyful and uplifting. So thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea. I truly did. No kidding. I remember somebody describing a book of Robert McFarlane's as joyful or joyous. And I thought that's my, that's my goals, my hashtag goals. (laughs) That's what I wanted. Awesome. Well, you succeeded. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, 
the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.